Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments, three interviews today. We'll hear first from Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative on the health effects of imprisonment. And then we'll hear an excerpt from an interview I did with the psychiatrist Terry Coopers in 2013 on the effects of solitary confinement on prisoners. And then B.K. White, a worker and union official at the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California, will talk about why they're on the verge of striking. First, prisoner health. It's dismal. Incarceration makes you sick, physically and mentally, and medical attention is of poor quality if it's available at all, plus a number of states charge prisoners for their care, even though most inmates barely have a dime. Every year behind bars takes two years off one's life expectancy. Here with more detail is Wanda Bertram, a communications strategist at the Prison Policy Initiative, a fancy title that embarrasses her some, so she also answers to the title writer. Wanda Bertram. So I guess it's no news that... uh, People in prison are not the healthiest uh, part of the population, but the numbers are really dramatic, aren't they? They really are. Uh, prisons are inherently unhealthy places, but I think they're even more unhealthy than most people understand. Um, and it's because of a, a lot of different things which we can get into. But the first thing I'd like to point out is that a lot of serious chronic illnesses uh, are more common in prison. Diabetes, HIV is three times as more common, uh, tuberculosis, high blood pressure, heart problems, mental illness, of course, uh, drug addiction, of course, and then the fact that prison populations are getting older over time, not really because of long sentences, uh, but because older people are going to prison more. So that's the baseline. That's what you start with. There is a problem of people aging in prison, right? But they're also putting more older people away. It's It's sort of a both and. You know, people have studied this and examined the hypothesis, everybody hypothesized at first that the aging prison population was because we had people in prison who'd been locked up since the 80s and the 90s. And that's part of it. But the driving factor is actually that older folks these days are have higher incarceration rates. Well, I thought mostly younger people commit crimes. How are we sending so many older people to prison? As you might know, our incarceration rates derive more from who we choose to incarcerate than who commits crimes. You know, plenty of wealthy people commit crimes, but they're not going to prison in very high rates. They just make mistakes, right? Right. Of course. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Of course, it has to be a mistake. You know, older folks are going to prison more, I believe, predominantly because of opioid and drug-related crimes. It's an awful thing, really, if you think about the fact that we have a, a drug and overdose crisis in this country right now. Um, and and instead of giving people care, we are locking people, including a lot of elderly people, uh, up in prison. Okay, back to the health issue. Now, of course, people who go to prison come from the poorer part of the population generally to begin with. So can we separate the effects of where prisoners come from to what happens to them while in prison? I think we can. Uh, you know, you're absolutely correct that people who are in prison tend to come, I mean, they're overwhelmingly uh, poor before they go to prison. As many people know, they're disproportionately uh, Black. Um, in many states, the majority Black prison populations. But we also know uh, from research that's been done that uh, prison takes two years off of your life expectancy per every year that you're incarcerated. And we know that the scale of incarceration is actually so great that this has had an overall impact on life expectancy in the U.S. as a whole. Uh, In 2016, Christopher Wildman uh, estimated that uh, U.S. life expectancy would have increased by more than five years, if not for mass incarceration. But because of mass incarceration, because we incarcerate so many people in these uh, institutions where you're, you're much more likely to die prematurely, the U.S. life expectancy only increased 3.5 years over that time. So this is just an example of how you can separate, you can isolate the impact that prison has uh, on life expectancy. And this was uh, pre-COVID data. That's right. During COVID, as I'm sure you uh, you know expect, things have just gotten worse. So a little more detail. What is it that uh, kills people in prison or makes them sick? Say that you're in prison, you need some treatment for a chronic illness, right? Uh, for one thing, prison is going to make your chronic illness worse. Prisons are hot in the summer and they're cold in the winter. You're not going to get a lot of uh, opportunities to exercise. You're going to be isolated from your family. 
So that's, that's the baseline, but say you need some treatment for a chronic illness, you know, diabetes, or maybe you think you have cancer, you're going to run into some issues getting treatment. The first big one is that unlike healthcare on the outside, there is virtually no autonomy in the process of getting healthcare if you're incarcerated. Even to, to see a doctor or to see a nurse, you have to put in a request and that request has to be transmitted from a corrections officer. Uh, they decide whether you get medication, whether you can see a doctor, and if you have some kind of problem that requires extra treatment that the prison can't provide, they decide if they're going to take you to an outside facility right? You're going to need to be escorted to an outside hospital. And if they don't have the resources to do that, or if they don't want to spare the resources, they're not going to take you. There's also the issue of co-pays in prison, which is something that we've studied a lot at the Prison Policy Initiative. There are uh, these policies that most states have in place that try to depress the number of requests to see the doctor that come in by requiring incarcerated people to fork over a copay. These are people who have basically no money, right? Exactly. Uh, for you and me, you know, a copay of $3 is no big deal. But to an incarcerated person, you know, people who are not making any money, these are copays that actually have the intended effect of, of deterring them from seeing the doctor. They're the equivalent of charging a free world worker uh, $200 or more uh, to, see, to see the doctor. So that's the other barrier that comes up if you're trying to get seen for a medical issue. You'd almost suspect that they want the prisoners to die. And I would imagine they don't transmit these requests with um, a great degree of speed. That's right. Uh, There are, you know, there's also the issue of these medical units being uh, overworked and under-resourced. So a lot of people will just get their requests shoved in a drawer somewhere. And I mean that literally. People will just have their request, you know, put in a drawer and forgotten about. Or they get literally told to, you know, go away, right? Your problem doesn't matter to us. For other chronic health problems, there's treatment programs that we think exist in prison or that you might think exist in prison, but they just don't exist. Um, Shockingly, two out of three people in federal prison report that they've received no mental health care while they're locked up, even though about 37% of people in prison have a a mental health issue, right? So there is a mismatch between the amount of people that require some programming, some treatment, and people who are able to get it. How much does this vary from state to state? Uh, it's, it's really hard to know, actually, and not a ton of state-specific research has been undone into this. And the federal prisons, are they any better or worse? Well, you know, I think in general, one rule of thumb is that the longer that you're locked up, the more likely you are to have access to the facilities where you're going to get long-term care. You know, people who are elderly are often in medical facilities, what they call medical prisons. Um, You might get sent to a facility that is equipped with, uh, you know, care units that are designed to take care of you when you're geriatric. If you're locked up in jail pre-trial, you're going to be in a local city or county facility, and that's where the health care is the absolute worst. So these things, you know, the the amount of care that you can get does differ based on whether you're in a short-term facility, sort of a medium-term facility, or a long-term facility, whether it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, like state versus federal, I don't really know. And what about um, COVID? What has COVID done to all this? COVID has uh, been a disaster. We know from some recent Bureau of Justice Statistics data that the number of deaths in state prisons, uh, state and federal prisons went up by 46% during 2020. And that's shocking because it's a much higher increase than the general population in the U.S. saw during that time. But it's also shocking if you consider that the number of people who were in prison went down pretty dramatically compared to previous years. Uh, There were these technical difficulties that states experienced in sending people to prison. And because of that, you have in many states, prison populations that were 10, even 15 or 20% lower by the middle of 2020 than they usually are. And yet overall deaths up 46%. And they're up because of COVID-19 deaths, but they're also up because of other things. Just as in the general population, you have medical units overwhelmed, which means that folks can't get the treatment that they usually get for other chronic and, and you know, serious short-term health problems. And what about local jails? How do they differ from prisons? Do we know? Local jails are built to hold people for short periods of time. Do they hold people for only short periods of time? Well, of course not. There's, you know, people locked up on Rikers Island, for instance, you know, in New York City, where you and I both live, um, who have been there for months or even years. But the notion of a jail is a place where you're detaining somebody for a time delimited period, basically before they go to trial, or you're detaining them for a few months while they serve one of the shortest sentences under state jurisdictions. So they're not equipped as long-term healthcare facilities, even though they tend to hold the exact same people 
who are most of the time in and out of emergency rooms. And then people get released from jails if they're kept there a short time, even if it's not always the case. Then they go back to their communities. Uh, Are they um, spreading disease as they are released? I think that's one of the the most overlooked uh, aspects of the impact of prisons and jails on public health is what happens after people are released. For one thing, if you go to prison and you're on public health insurance, if you're on government health insurance, you're going to get kicked off of the insurance rules when you are booked. Um, And when you're released, oftentimes, if not most of the time, you're not assisted with getting back onto the insurance rules. You might end up also with medical debt after prison, right? Even though in theory, you're getting all that stuff paid for by the government while you're incarcerated. Frequently, you're going to outside hospitals, you're getting seen by outside facilities, and they are still, they still have a bill waiting for you when you get out. Rates of overdose after prison are really high. Uh, And like you're mentioning, Uh, contagions that spread behind bars really quickly are not going to stay there. People are, you know, moving in and out of these facilities every single day, mostly corrections officers, you know, although, you know, also family, volunteers, people who, you know, come to visit. And what that's meant during COVID-19 is that the states and and the counties with higher proportions of incarcerated people also saw higher rates of COVID. We can actually, you know, we can actually isolate for for the effect of mass incarceration on rates of COVID in 2020 and 2021 and find that it had a measurable impact. I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You mentioned corrections officers. Um, how um, susceptible are they to these uh, diseases uh, behind bars? Uh, considerably, we actually have an analysis coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks about you know how uh, how dangerous it is to work in prisons. There's you know uh, many people don't have a lot of sympathy for uh, for people who are working in prisons, and I understand that. But uh, you have to understand that these are these are jobs that people often take because they're the jobs that are available where they live, and they're they're very dangerous, right? Uh, people who are uh, working corrections jobs in particular suffer from a lot of mental health impacts of working in those environments, and they they come out of their jobs with one of the same conditions that incarcerated people tend to come out of prison with, which is a a particular kind of PTSD resulting from what they witness while they are in those facilities. I noticed a headline on your blog. I didn't get a chance to read the article behind it, but uh, it's people with incarcerated loved ones have shorter uh, life expectancies and poorer health. That's right. Uh, If you look at the communities and the families that incarcerated people are coming from and you survey those individuals, what you'll find is that those people are are living uh, shorter lives. Now, uh, of course, you're going to want to isolate for things like uh, their income levels, right? Uh, Any pre-existing health conditions, anything that's more endemic to where they come from that's not related to incarceration. But the researchers have done that. And they've still found that you see lower life expectancies if you have a loved one locked up. And my guess is that ha- that has a lot to do with trauma, with isolation, and with the downstream effects of losing uh, that person who is a critical support to you before they were incarcerated. Uh, this is just all very, very grim news. Um, but it's not very well known. I mean, you know, I consider myself pretty well informed. I've been following crime and punishment pretty closely for a, a long time. And I only first learned about uh, the jail issue uh, when I heard from Erica Reinhardt, who's uh, done some work in the Cook County Jail, uh, and then read your stuff. It's not really in wide circulation, is it? Well, we're trying to get it in as wide circulation as we possibly can. And I think that, you know, one of the ways that that we can do that is by linking it up with other issues. You know, for one thing, if you support sentencing reform, right, if you're against the new Jim Crow, you're already on the right track because these are not just reforms, you know, things like decriminalizing drugs, right? These are not just reforms that will make the system uh, better um, and will make this country fairer. They're improvements to public, public health in this country. And by the same token, if you support uh, progressive reforms to the healthcare system, right? If you support Medicare for all, single-payer healthcare, these are also reforms that are going to matter to incarcerated people and are actually, in my view, going to lower the incarceration rate. So I think that's how we get this into the conversation is by, uh, you know, getting people to understand how connected it is to what they're already thinking about, what they already care about. Do we have any information in other countries? Is this an American, another instance of American exceptionalism? Well, I think it is just because the if you look at the incarceration rate that the, in this country compared to all the other countries, it is absolutely off the charts. I was shocked, uh, although I guess not really that shocked. In the middle of the pandemic, jails, local jails, had emptied their populations by you know not holding as many people pretrial, all sorts of different things, right? Again, technical difficulties of incarcerating people during the pandemic. So jail incarceration rates were very low. Even at that point, 
Local jails alone incarcerated more people per capita in this country than almost any other country incarcerates altogether in jails, prisons, and all other kinds of facilities. That is how off the charts our incarceration rates are. So my guess is that in other countries, this is really not having the same kind of public health impact. And jails are a small portion of uh, the total incarcerated population, right? That's right. It's about a quarter to a third. You know, I, I don't know if you'd call that small, but uh, it's, it's, it's larger than most people think, but it's, it's a minority. Yeah. And also people uh, on parole suffer um, health issues. That's right. And a lot of those health issues come from the fact that they've spent so much time locked up. Um, we put people on parole under huge amounts of stress because of the conditions that they're under. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, we're not really providing them with a lot of care. And we have a healthcare system that, you know, that means demographically, they're more likely to be excluded from getting care anyway, right? So this is a self-perpetuating problem. So really, um, the only way to solve this problem is by jailing many, many fewer people and uh, taking better care of the ones who are um, in jail uh, or in prison. I mean, there's, it's not a complicated right. problem to solve, in other words. Well, you know, I think everybody sort of has an opinion, right? If you, like I said, if you support sentencing reform, you're kind of on the right track. Um, And this, you know, all this data should just bolster your reasons for doing that. If you don't support sentencing reform, if you think people should be getting sentences of 10 or 20 or 50 years, then you have to start thinking seriously about how do we keep people out of committed crimes in the first place? And good luck with that, because we have serious public safety problems in this country. And we have elected officials who are trying to sell us more and more law enforcement solutions to those problems. I was just uh, looking at Eric Adams's plan to end gun violence in New York City, which he released a few days ago after two people got shot and killed. And keep in mind, Eric Adams is a liberal. He advertises his plan to reduce gun violence as policing and prevention. So policing gun crime and preventing gun crime. And yet his plan gives the police more money but it doesn't give the mental health care system any more money. It moves the mental health money around. That's what I would call a law enforcement heavy response to a public safety problem. And it is exactly what we have more and more and more of right now. Well, when people talk about cracking down on gun possession, that often means putting them in jail, right? It might sound humane on the surface, but it actually has a brutal backside. That's right. And, you know, and I think, uh, again, when, when, you know, liberals say these days, we're going to, you know, they're, they're trying to provide lip service to criminal justice reform. And so they'll say, you know, don't worry, we understand that gun crime is also the result of uh, institutional uh, inequalities and poverty and, uh, you know, structural racism. And so we're going to, we're going to work on all those other things too. But then you actually look at what their plans to combat gun violence actually are. And it's a lot of funding for police and it's really no new money for healthcare systems systems, education, um, you know, summer programs for young people, et cetera, et cetera. And we haven't talked about solitary confinement, which I imagine is brutal in its effects. That's right. Yeah, solitary confinement has a whole host of impacts of people's health upon, you know, after they're released. Uh, I think it has even even you know, more intense effects on people's life expectancy. Something interesting that, you know, from the last few years is that if you look at the number of deaths in state prisons, they have gone up since 2001 by 44 percent. Uh, even though, as most people, uh, I think, know intuitively, the state prison population has stayed pretty flat since 2001, you're right? Um, we have just as much mass incarceration that, that we did at the beginning of the uh, millennium, but no more. And yet deaths are up beyond just illnesses, which account for the vast majority of prison deaths. Uh, suicides are up, homicides are up, and drug and alcohol deaths are up. I think a lot of these things do have to do with solitary confinement, um, as well as other, you know, other other kind of inst- institutional or structural problems in prisons. And solitary confinement has become just a routine form of punishment in American prisons. It's a form of punishment, and I think it's you know it's telling that it is also often uh, a form of a form of protection. You know, prisons will say you know during COVID nineteen, for instance, um, many prisons were saying you know to protect people who may have been exposed to the COVID nineteen virus, uh, we're going to put them in solitary. Just like some of these lawmakers who are saying, you know, we're doing everything we can, we're firing on all cylinders to stop this public health issue. The prisons are saying, you know, we're not just using solitary confinement, we're also going to, you know, release some vulnerable people, but they didn't. So it sounds like even if by some miracle, we were to begin significantly reduce the prison population, these problems would linger for years. Absolutely. I mean, you don't just get rid of, for one thing, Ending mass incarceration is a, a lifetime project, and I think right now, um, with the even with the gains that we've seen, you're still looking at you know like a hundred years before we even get back down to the incarceration rates of the 1970s. So this is you know this this is a problem that's going to stick with us. Well, thank you.
This has been uh, very informative, but very depressing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, I do think that there's, um, I'm not going to try to end on a light note. I don't think that's appropriate, but I do think that you're helping to get these issues out in the broader conversation. And that's really powerful. So thank you. That was Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. We talked a bit about solitary confinement. Here's some more on the topic. There are no exact counts of the number of prisoners in solitary in the U.S. Estimates range from 50,000 to 80,000 or even higher, a huge number for an exceptionally brutal and damaging form of incarceration. In the early months of the COVID pandemic, as many as 300,000 were put in solitary, allegedly for their safety. Here's an excerpt from an interview I did in 2013 with the psychiatrist Terry Coopers, now a professor emeritus at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, on its effects. If you take someone who is either mentally ill or, or on the verge of it or vulnerable to becoming mentally ill, put them in prison, what is it about the institution of the prison that uh, can push people over the edge? Let's start with crowding. And then crowding has really morphed. And that is the crowding is still present in the prisons. But now what we have is a huge problem with solitary confinement. So let me start with crowding. We have a lot of research that shows that the size of the population inside a confined space, as the population grows, the, the prevalence or incidence of violence, mental breakdown, and suicide rise. Now, this makes sense. If you have someone on the street or in the community who needs a lot of time alone and basically stays away from people because they know they have trouble when they're interacting with people. It either stirs them up and causes them to have emotional problems, or they can't control their temper and they get into fights or whatever. And in the community, what they will do is tend to uh, be a loner. That is, they'll go off by themselves and they'll take some time for themselves. And they'll marginally keep their mental health together. You put them in prison where there's no private space. You're always among people, and the more crowded it is, the more people there are. There are an awful lot of um, very tough prisoners who, who threaten anyone who's not tough enough, and they will find the people with mental illness and bully them. And then there's sexual assault, and there's just the constant pressure of uh, not having anyone you can really trust, and so people uh, break down along the lines that they're prone to break down. So if they're prone to psychosis, they will have a psychotic episode. If they're prone to depression and suicide, they will become despairing of ever getting out of prison, and they'll fall into a deep depression. Uh, crowding, it just makes all of those things worse. Now, what happened in the prison system in the United States is in the 1980s, the population had already multiplied by four or five times since the 1970s. And there was a massive problem with violence around the country. There were a lot of things that were called riots. Often they were protests, and the uh, system called them riots. But actually, there were prisoners who were dissatisfied with the lack of programs, the poor quality of food, the harsh way they were being treated. So there was a lot of uncontrolled violence in the prisons. As the system looked at that, as the politicians and the correctional administrators looked at that, they blamed the prisoners for that violence rather than making the very logical conclusion that it was the crowding and the lack of programs that was causing the violence. And they did what I call a historic wrong turn. What they should have done is reduce the prison population for instance, by ending the war on drugs and stop sending low-level drug offenders to prison where they would be tormented and break down, and send those people into alternative programs in the community, meanwhile reestablishing rehabilitation programs, enriching rehabilitation, because socially that really pays off. The money that's put into rehabilitation pays off in the future success of the ex-prisoner, and then they're not a, a problem in society where they have to be policed and put back in prison. So it's a money-saving investment in rehabilitation. Well, they didn't do that. Instead, what they did is they blamed a small proportion of the prison population, called them super predators or incorrigible. And they started building supermax prisons, which are prison units entirely specialized in solitary confinement. And we have them in California at Pelican Bay, Corcoran, Tehachapi. We even have one for women in the Central Valley. What they did is they put a certain percentage of the prison population into isolation 24 hours a day. Now, this made the problem much worse because, first of all, 
more recent research shows that the advent of the supermax prison did not result in a decrease in violence. Instead, the violence rate stayed the same or increased. And meanwhile, the people who were put in isolation, and some of them, there's prisoners at Pelican Bay right now who are suing. They've been there for 25 years. And what happens in solitary confinement is the human beings break down. We are social beings, and we need a certain amount of social interaction and productive activity to maintain our mental health. With solitary confinement, what we have is a lot of psychosis, of depression and suicide that happens because of the harsh conditions of solitary confinement. So it's, it's like the system has multiplied the problems. Could you describe what a typical day is like for someone in solitary confinement? I imagine there's not much variation from day to day, but what is it like? Basically, there's total idleness and total isolation. These are segregation units or solitary confinement or isolation. They're all, those words are used interchangeably, as is the term SHU, S-H-U, which is the acronym in California for the supermax units. What happens is a person is in their cell 24 hours a day. They may have a cellmate, so there may be two of them in a small space. It's about 8 foot by 10 foot. What Mumia Abu-Jamal says is imagine yourself locked in your bathroom 24 hours a day, and that's a solitary confinement cell. There's a slot on the door, and the doors are semi-solid metal. They have a mesh where there are little holes that you can look through. This is at Pelican Bay, but you can't really see much out of the door. You have no window that opens. You have a little slot that uh, you could see outside, but uh, that's, it's very solid and you can't uh, open it. There's nothing in the cell except for a bed, which is a concrete slab with a thin mattress, a little desk and a toilet, and you spend your whole day there. People who read and write will spend a lot of their time studying. They'll get a book or two from the library or go, they have a right to go to the law library and they'll spend their time studying, and that tends to keep people relatively stable if they have that kind of productive uh, pursuit. Forty percent of prisoners cannot read and write, so uh, for a lot of people there isn't that outlet. And what they will do is lie in bed all day, or they'll pace their cell, they'll do exercises, some clean their cell compulsively over and over again. And they may or may not have a television or a radio. This varies depending on the security level and and the trouble they're in. So basically, they do nothing all day. And then there's what they call yard. And the yard in a solitary confinement unit is really often a space about as big as the cell itself with no, no equipment at all to do any athletic endeavors. And they are taken one by one and put in that yard and uh, the rules in California are very rigid about not uh, putting prisoners together, so they go one by one to the yard. And that's their recreation, and by law, from various uh, court cases, we've had some class action lawsuits, they have to be supplied five hours of that kind of recreation per week. But it really isn't recreation, it's really uh, a travesty that they call it recreation. And that's what people do. Their food is passed to them by a guard who won't really say anything. They have no social contact. To talk to other prisoners, they have to yell. Either they can yell into the ventilation system, and the prisoner in the next cell, the next several cells will hear them, or they just yell out into the pod, which is the name of the little unit they live in. They can yell, and someone else can yell back at them. So there is that kind of communication. But it's really not a meaningful kind of communication, and there's no privacy, for instance. If you yell, all the prisoners and all the staff hear you. And what does this do to people, and how quickly? Well, you know, it can be immediate, and it varies from person to person. Sarah Shard, who was uh, one of the three Americans that was captured in Iran and kept in prison, was in solitary only for a few days when she started having very serious uh, emotional reactions, which she's written about very um, poignantly. Uh, some people, it takes months, and there are a few people who actually prefer to be in a cell by themselves, and there are people who were reclusive anyway, and they like being in a cell because that keeps them from having to interact with other people on the yard, which they're afraid of. Those people are a very small minority, I think maybe 5% of the people who are in solitary. 
there's no way to capture the entire population and what happens. People who are prone to psychosis tend to have breakdowns fairly quickly. People who are depressive and prone to suicide, it might take months or years, and then they will become just very despairing, and they'll be convinced they'll never get out of solitary, and they'll decide to take their own life. And uh, we arbitrarily draw a line at three months, and we talk about long-term solitary confinement being more than three months. And there's a whole lot of people in the California Department of Corrections who've been there for decades. Mendez, the uh, special rapporteur for the United Nations on torture, said that any confinement in solitary over 15 days constitutes torture. So there are various estimates of the length of time it takes to do real harm, but I feel it's cumulative and it's different from individual to individual. That was a psychiatrist, Terry Coopers, for an interview of First Broadcast in 2013. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the grand entree from Alceste by George Friedrich Handel, or Georg Friedrich if you prefer, performed by the English concert under Trevor Pinnock. Next, a report from B.K. White, a worker at the Chevron refinery in Richmond, California, where workers are on the brink of a strike. White is also a vice president of the United Steelworkers Union Local 5 there, which represents some of the workers at the plant. Wright's Local is an organizational descendant of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. Because of dwindling membership, OCAL merged with the Paper Workers Union in 1995, and the Paper Workers were subsequently absorbed by the Steelworkers in 1999. Tony Mazaki, who was OCAL's Vice President and Secretary Treasurer in the 1970s and 1980s, was a major force in expanding the union's activism beyond the usual wage and hour concerns into the environmental and worker safety fields. He was a mentor to Karen Silkwood and was a leading force behind the creation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in 1970. Mazaki was also active in the anti-war movement and in the campaign to convert military industries to civilian use. In other words, Mazaki was a kind of labor leader with a broad social agenda of the sort you don't see very often. It was great to hear from B.K. White that his influence endures 20 years after his death. Now here's B.K. White. Could you describe the plant? How many people work there? And uh, what's, what's the workforce like? What's, uh, what are the demographics of it? Roughly 1,200 uh, people work at the refinery. Demographics... Uh... A microbes with the outside world, the numbers don't show us as being diverse in, in most industries. So we're probably a reflection of that. You know, the numbers are probably about the same, whether one race is 10% here or 50% here. So we represent about 500 members, maybe a little over 500 members, United Steelworkers. There's other unions within the um, refinery, proprietary uh, workers. Um, it's us and a, and a couple more unions. And what kind of work do you do? I'm a plant process operator. I've been at the refinery for 29 years. And how do you feel about the job? The job itself is, is enjoyable, right? The, the company can be difficult. Yeah. So what, what's your uh, grievance? What's your beef with the company? Not upholding agreements that we've signed before, uh, trying to circumvent the union, uh, circumvent certain union principles, such as seniority. You're constantly out there uh, fighting for for them to be equitable to all um, workers, all of our represented workers, but for fairness and for respect for our workers and safety. Safety is huge in our union. This union uh, helped uh, found uh, um, OSHA. And um, a lot of our fights are um, for protection of the neighborhoods, the environment, and, and our workers. Yeah, could you talk about that a bit more? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty dirty business, right? 
It, it is. It is. Um, you know, we often say that um, there are intelligent people on the company side and um, they have the intelligence to um, run these refineries uh, safely. But do they have the integrity you know, when it comes down to making a decision on uh, safety or monetary gain? And it's a union. You know, we must be their conscience. And that's what we're there for. And we're the first line of defense because what affects us affects uh, affects the the neighborhoods that the, these companies operate in and uh, the environment. Yeah, let's talk a bit about, uh, I guess there are a couple of aspects of this. One is the fact that uh, just uh, how dangerous is the job itself, like just workplace accidents, that sort of thing. The process itself can be dangerous. You know, it takes a lot of training. Um, it takes um, investment in equipment. It takes adhering to process safety management, which I'm very proud of my union being at the forefront way before industry. Industry will claim things on process safety management. But going back to when we were OCAW, OCOP, this union is founded on um, safety. You know, uh, Karen Silkwood was in this union. Uh, we're proud of that. Safety is really big. And if these things are ignored, uh, we're having problems out in the plant now. Uh, we have proposals across the table on safety work orders. We just, you know, it's not any monetary gain for our people. We just want when the eyes and ears of the refinery see something unsafe and they write it up, we we don't want to just create piles of paper. We want those concerns addressed and the possible um, break in safety to be to be fixed. You're the uh, the descendant of Oka. I used to know Tony Mazaki way back when. Great man. Oka taught me so much. I'm a proud descendant of Oka every day, and it makes me proud that we're a union. Um, it is about safety and that we don't just, we're just not out there grabbing money. It's all I talk about. And Tony Mazaki was, was, a, was a hell of a man. And it is our job to carry on that legacy. And of course, this is not like, you know, food processing. If something goes wrong and the place could blow up, right? I mean, this is an extremely uh, volatile place to work. Yes, it is. And it, and it takes extensive training. It takes rested workers. It takes uh, dedicated trainers and procedures. Procedures are so important. And that's, that's another big fight we're having. In 2012, uh, there was a, um, a fire at the Chevron refinery. And um, when an audit was done by Contra Costa County, which is one of the top counties in the, in the nation as far as pushing safety in the, in the city of Richmond, very progressive uh, city council, they found that we were woefully lacking in our procedures. And um, Chevron made a commitment with our electronic operating manuals and, and maintenance manuals we would improve our, our, our procedures. Um, it wasn't the only factor that led to it, but it was a contributing, a large contributing factor. And 10 years later, after the fire, no one's looking that way anymore. They, they did away with those positions, very vital positions. And, and these uh, positions were robust and there were checks and balances to make sure that we were um, operating our plants correctly. And when we did uh, tasks that we did them correctly by following procedures and not making mistakes. Now, if you report a problem, uh, what's the company's reaction? Do they pay attention to it or try to sweep it under the rug? It, it depends. If it's um, the low-hanging fruit, something easily fixable, you know, it's a, a tripping hazard, they're all over it and, you know, and, and they tout safety. But if there's something that's going to slow down the process or take money away from the profit, you know, sometimes it could be a fight. And so we have uh, full-time health and safety people in the plants that were pushed by OSHA, and that's what we believe, I mean, excuse me, OCA, and what we believe in, um, then, you know, they have to push and we have to use whatever resources that we have, you know, whether it's regulatory or outside agencies to get things fixed. I assume that Chevron is hardly a, a broke fly-by-not operation. They've got the money to do this right. Um, they, right. Have the they have the money. They have <laughs> the money. They just don't want to part with it. You know, it, it's amazing. It's almost like um, it's a movie and, and they refuse to play any part other than the villain. The union, the United Steelworkers, has you know, tried to partner with them and, and clean up their image. And such things as uh, carbon capturing, you know, we've went to them and said, hey, listen, you know, you've, you've got to do something different. We do know this is a volatile industry, but it can be ran responsibly. And times are changing and we need to work um, the USW plans partnered with the Blue Green Alliance um, and with environmentalists to try to ensure the safety of the environment while working and not impact negatively the impact the environment or 
of the communities in which these um, these conglomerates operate in. Now, of course, as we make it or try to make a turn away from carbon as an energy source, what does the union, what do you as a worker think about um, you know, the sustainability of this kind of work, this kind of industry? Well, we do know that if we do, not we, if, if the corporations run these places irresponsible, that it would accelerate, you know, the closing of these facilities. But right now, the carbon-based fuels are needed. You know, everyone's always looking at cars, but there's jets, you know, there's propane, there's a lot of things tied to them. And it, it's not, this is a big ship. It doesn't turn fast. This is, a, you know, it's going to turn. It eventually will turn, but it's going to take a while to turn. And so in the meantime, we have to make sure that we have PSM in place. And we are, you know, we know green technologies are coming in. There's refineries that are working with um, reusable fuels and stuff like that. And the steel workers are trying to get out. And, we, you know, we, of course, want good jobs for our people. We want to keep our people employed. And we also, we walk that balance with that. We definitely want to be good citizens of, of the world as far as um, um, being responsible and not polluting. I hear the uh, the voice of Tony Mazaki behind that. Uh, thank you. I'm speaking with B.K. White, a worker at the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California, who's also a VP of the United Steelworkers local there. What's the relationship with the surrounding community? I imagine it's a pretty big presence in Richmond. It, it really is. And, you know, we're workers. We're not Chevron. We're not Shell. We're not PBF. We're not Tesoro. We're workers. And we come from that community. And the biggest insult that we could ever have is to believe that we are the corporation or we fight to let our people know that we are not the corporation, that we have more commonalities with the hotel workers, the fight for 15, the farm workers, the grape pickers. And Tony Mazaki said his biggest fear is that we would get so good at negotiating that we would forget, you know, our labor background. And so that, you know, it's the struggle and we, we try to give back. We could do a lot more to, uh, join in forces with the communities to let them know that that we are workers and we're not Chevron. So um, we're their first line of defense. Um, there's some really good people in the city of Richmond. I'm very proud of how progressive that city is. And we try to reach out, do things with the citizens for a better environment, uh, for the Richmond Progressive Alliance, uh, APN, and just try to put a, a human face on the people going inside the gates. We also have to Make sure that we don't give corporations a pass as if they're just the machine. There's there are people running that who are making bad decisions. So just to say the corporation is if it's just machinery, there there's a, a a people side of that too that are are making choices, willful choices to uh, run these um, these plants the way they decide to. Recently, talked to the Richmond City Council about if we did have a labor stoppage that the refinery has decided to continue to run the plant with unskilled workers. Um, the United Steel Workers, as we've always done, as we did with OCA, have offered a, a orderly and safe uh, shutdown of the plant as to not to impact the surrounding community or the environment. So what, what is the history of labor management relations uh, at this plant? The oil industry is, you know, they're a dinosaur. There is, there's nothing progressive about how they treat their people. It's, it has always been an acerbic relationship. It is never, it, it's, it's amazing. They will ask our members to go out and speak to the, to the city and, and, you know, push the company line. But recently they contacted five uh, police uh, agencies in the area and said that we were a threat to the community uh, for protests. And the protest hadn't even began, but they thought we were going on strike. And it's amazing that these, these workers that said they care about they would, you know, heighten tensions by bringing in the police. <laughs> That's is, amazing. You don't call the cops, even if there's a strike. <laughs> you got to remember who they are. You know, I've been around for a while. And in 1998 in Nigeria, uh, when they had the private forces go onto the, the, the oil rigs and, you know, two people were killed. And they were basically paid by the, the you know, the corporation. They were sued in San Francisco for this. This is, you know, it's the Pinkerton stuff. It's what corporations do. Yeah, well, there's certainly a long history of that. So, what, what's the uh, what are the prospects for a strike? Uh, what what's the timeline look like, and what are the odds? You know, Tony Mazaki, so um, I'm sure you know this. It's it's a strange negotiations that we do in oil refineries. We have a national table, and we have a local table, and um, they both have to align. And on our national table, uh, industry picks a lead company, and they've picked 
uh, marathon, which may have been a mistake. Marathon is, is, is not cooperating, is not negotiating uh, in earnest with our table, with our international uh, reps that are at the table. So um, right now we're doing a rolling uh, 24 where we're at any 24 hour notice, we could, we could go on strike. There hasn't been a lot of movement. Uh, they've only- wanted- Is it just your union or others as well? Oh, this is just our union. This is United Steelworkers, but they're, they send a lead company and they're, so oil industry, they set a pattern and all of the other oil uh, industry should follow that pattern. They're only willing to talk about monetary gains in the terms of the contract. And we're more than that. We're more than that. We want, we want to talk about environmental reps. We want to talk about greenhouse cap, uh, capture. We want to talk about, you know, this out of control healthcare and, you know, what it's doing um, to workers, not us, to every worker in the United States. Um, a lot of safety things that we're pushing and they just believe that the, they can throw money in and, and that it'll be enough uh, for the steel workers, but they do not know our yield. Yeah. So what's the timeline look like? Um, is the contract expired or? Yes, it expired uh, January 31st at uh, midnight. And um, we were extended a rolling uh, 24. Our intention is not for a work stoppage. Our intention is for a fair and equitable contract. But they own these these facilities. You know, all we have is our work. And, and the only thing, the power that we have is to withhold our work. We don't want to do it. But, you know, if we're not treated with respect, we've come too far. We're too big of a union and we're too strong and proud people to be disrespected at the table. A lot of the things that we're offering to them aren't monetary hits. It's just to, to, to operate safely, some dignity, and take care of your people. Now, this is not an industry where the uh, the company could just fire everyone and hire scabs, right? Because it's just really complex equipment that you really have to know what you're doing. It would be irresponsible for them to attempt to. The, the, the dangers that they would put the community in would be astronomical. And uh, they're, they're rolling the dice um, uh, with their future and uh, with the immediate future of the people in the surrounding communities if they were if they were silly enough to try that. So what should we be looking for um, just to see if uh, they start negotiating seriously? Yes, we just want a little respect. We want some we want some key issues to be a, to be addressed and to earnestly negotiate with us. Give us a fair contract. We're workers. We're not going to get rich on this job. You know, these we work long and tedious hours at the refinery I'm at work 12 hour shifts. Uh, it's not uncommon to work over 70 hours a week. And the company's approaching us and they're um, asking for the ability to punish people for not coming in on their off day. So if you've worked 70 hours and you're just like, I can't take it anymore. They want the ability to discipline up to termination. For you being fatigued. Well, this is not the kind of work where you want people not to be well-rested. People really need to be well-rested in this kind of work. You're absolutely right. So much so that in 2005 in Texas City, when there was the catastrophic uh, fire that killed 15 people, many of which were our members, United Steelworkers, the CSB, the Chemical Safety Board, uh, one of the major findings they they found was uh, the workers who worked over 20 days, 12-hour shifts, and fatigue was a big portion of it. And so the American Petroleum Institute came out with the API 755, which was called fatigue risk management. And um, in these negotiations, we got our company to admit to like 20,000 exceptions, which meant there were violations in this fatigue risk outline in three years. And yet still they're asking to punish people, not for not coming in on their regular days, but for not coming in and not allowing us to force them in to the point of fatigue, which is a danger to everyone. Why don't they just hire more workers? Why work people, you know, 70-hour weeks? There, that's a good question. It's it's mismanagement that's gotten us to this point, and their answer isn't to address uh, a lazy style of management, but to punish the workers. It's the simplest thing to do if you don't want to address a complicated issue. And uh, you're saying this is really not, uh, the, the dispute is not mostly about monetary issues, it's mostly about conditions of work? Mostly conditions of work, motion conditions of work. The, the monetary issues are almost where we've signed contracts before, but there's, there's so many things that have been eroded and there's so many attacks just on union principles as far as seniority and um, being able to uh, put in policy that is despaired in nature that uh, it goes against everything, you know, 
that unions are founded on, that you give people opportunities and not be based on, you know, your fishing buddy or, or people who are sycophants or, you know, doing the company's will, but just hardworking people out there who want an opportunity. Uh, and we've heard a lot, you know, recent weeks about uh, workers quitting their jobs in record numbers. Um, are you seeing any of that going on at your, at your plant? One of the overworked areas that is in my division, we've had uh, people leaving, going into other industries or just leaving state. And it's just, you know, it's a grind. And you get to that balance of where you have to choose between, you, you know, your health and, and your livelihood. And, and people are, are making decisions and making very hard decisions. And the decisions are even harder now with with all of the good blue collar jobs that, that we've lost uh, because of, you know, the nation exploiting uh, other nations for a lower uh, labor cost. So uh, what do you think? Are the odds are a favor of strike? What are we going to see in the next few days? Well, you know, we're doing our best. It's not what we want, but we, are, we do come from OCA. We're not afraid. There's no fear in doing the right thing. We know who we are. We'll make a stand and we won't compromise. There's only so far we can be pushed. There's so, be, so much taken away from the American worker. The health care is killing us all. Inflation is killing us all. And to disregard safety on top of that, it's only so far we can be pushed before we have to stand up and fight back. That was B.K. White, a worker at the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California, and a vice president of the Steelworkers Union there. If we had more locals like his, this would be a better country. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a politically irrelevant bit of power pop. Is that how you pronounce it? From the L.A.-based Illuminati Hotties, which is mainly a vehicle for Sarah Tudson. Till next week, bye.